Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The FT. Hello and welcome back to the Energy Weekly podcast with me, Ed Crooks. This week we're going to be looking at China, which has just been revealed is now the world's biggest consumer of energy, and at the latest developments in the BP saga. With the summer approaching, we're on slightly reduced service this week, and I have just the one guest uh, joining me in the studio, Carol Hoyos, the FT's chief energy correspondent. So, Carol, you've been looking today at this story about China becoming the world's biggest energy consumer. This is quite a moment in history, isn't it? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It is a real moment. Um, and it's a moment that the Chinese deny, which makes it all the more interesting. Oh, yeah. They've in fact come out and said, look, no, the IEA is wrong. I think they're so, sorry, the IEA, this is the International Energy Agency who've calculated these figures That's that right. suggest China is the biggest consumer. That's right. right. The IEA came out earlier this week saying that China in 2009 had surpassed um, the US in terms of energy consumption. The next day, China took offence to that and the senior officials said that it, that claim had very little credibility. Now, if you look at it in more detail, the Chinese numbers are actually pretty much the same as the IEA numbers. There are slight differences in that the IEA um, includes includes biomass, which is kind of the traditional burning and wood of, of wood and other things, and the Chinese numbers don't. Animal dung, presumably. Yeah, that, exactly, those, those kind, kind of things. things. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, even the Chinese numbers, it's a rounding error. I mean, they're pretty much neck and neck. And the Chinese don't deny, and nobody denies, and it's pretty much impossible to deny, that the, tr- the trend of it, uh, it was just a matter of, is it this year or next year that we're going to hit this. And in fact, the IEA, uh, which is pretty much a shorthand, we call it the energy watchdog of the kind of rich consuming nations, says that, uh, in fact, they had initially thought it would take another five years for that this this to happen, this change to happen. But it, it happened more quickly because of the recession, because the US reduced its energy demand, in part because of the rest, recession, but also in part because it is now using energy more efficiently. And that's particularly the thing that annoyed the Chinese, I think, this, this inference that Chinese are wasting energy and that the US is becoming better um, and, and more environmentally friendly uh, than China. China takes great pride and has made huge steps in alternative energy and energy efficiency. But in terms of those comparisons of energy efficiency, in terms of energy per capita, China is still obviously using a lot less than the United yeah. States. What about per dollar of GDP? How, how does that kind of work out in terms of energy efficiency? Is China more or less efficient than the US. In general, China still uses energy less efficiently in in part because it subsidizes its energy, which right. is one critical issue. The other issue is obviously the two countries are in completely different points at their development scale. One other thing, I, you talked about the per capita use, which is something that the Chinese care a lot about. And there, the individual Chinese person will use about a third, or at the moment will use about a third of what uh, somebody living in the Western world uses. And of course, the US is still much more wasteful than Europeans are. Or, or, so or from still... the Japanese again, which is the exactly, most and the Japanese. So there's country, still yeah. quite a lot of progress to, to, to be done there. But, you know, China has been actually incredibly influential and will be going forward because of this great energy demand in things like 
wind turbines and solar power. For example, this year, the IEA said in response yesterday to the denial by the Chinese, the Chinese are going to be the champions of wind and solar this this year, installing more of that kind of technology than any other individual country. But the IEA very much stands by its numbers. And I, I looked back and uh, looked, for example, at the BP statistical report, which is something the industry follows very closely. and Which, was, which is another guide to energy statistics exactly. around the world, yeah. And they split up Hong Kong and China. The IEA can't do that for diplomatic reasons. But if you add them together, in fact, BP also has seen China last year surpass the US in energy demand. And what's right. interesting isn't really whether they did or didn't and at what date they did. What's interesting is what's the implication and, and, and those are manifold. Yeah. From here on in, yeah. China's only going to get bigger relative right. to the US and the rest of the world, right? And that's very interesting from several perspectives. One, and we've already begun to see this, uh, you know, how does that affect Chinese policies domestically and overseas? Um, There's been lots of belly aching from Western officials about China's aggressiveness in pursuing oil fields from places like Kazakhstan uh, to Sudan to to, to Latin America. Um, Then, of course, there's a concern about the growing emissions and the decisions China makes in terms of um, its environmental policy. Uh, so, so there'll be a multiplier effect uh, it, it, with with China having this new role uh, that's developed gradually, but nonetheless, it's now really very, very present. Um, it will decide in the way that the U.S. decided when it fell in love with the car a um, hundred years ago how we were going to use energy and and how also non-Americans were going to use energy. Um, the decisions that the Chinese make about whether they go nuclear, what kind of cars they build, what kind of uh, cars they de- de- uh, um, demand, that will then have a knock-on effect internationally. And they will define the next hundred uh, hundred years uh, in terms of our energy use and therefore also in terms of our environmental progress. Fascinating thought, as you say. Really a very potent indicator, again, of China's emergence as a world power. The other big news this week, as most weeks in the world of energy, has been developments with BP. The beleaguered British oil company, as we seem to keep calling it, has uh, had some success. It's put, it's put this cap onto the top of its well in the Gulf of Mexico. No more oil leaking out into the water right now, although a permanent solution uh, we're still waiting for. In the meantime, though, BP is looking to the future, thinking about what kind of company it's going to be and how it can put itself straight. And one of the things that's meaning is strengthening its finances. And so we're having some assets being put up for sale and one deal already concluded with Apache where they're selling something for for $7 billion. What's the the background, Karen, in terms of the kind of... uh, the strategy of BP and why they're doing this, what are they thinking about the kind of assets they're looking to sell? Well, the single most important thing is that BP shows that it has the cash to pay for the liabilities that have sprung out from, since the leak. And that's particularly important in the run-up of July 27th, which is when they have the next earnings call and when they need to tell, begin to tell investors what's going on. The share price has been um, very much dependent on this story flow. In terms of what they're selling, they're selling non-core assets, either mature assets or assets in uh, in places where they don't have that big of a foothold. Uh, the Apache deal included Egypt, um, included quite a bit of the, the US, but but kind of the more marginal uh, US uh, fields in Canada, which was more significant. Um, and the other two that they've flagged up are now Vietnam and Pakistan. Again, not core. A lot of analysts actually see this as a positive and say this is um, BP 
you know, cleaning out its closet and that there's there's plenty of flexibility in the uh, in, in the portfolio for it to do so and that it's just accelerating this and, and that this is not not a big, uh, big hardship. What do you think? Has BP managed to convince investors and others who are jittery about whether it could pay for all this that, in fact, it does have a robust uh, balance sheet and it can pay for it given the assets it can sell? I certainly don't think it's convinced them yet. And if you look at the market reaction today, which has been kind of mildly positive, but certainly not decisive, but they do look as if they're heading in the right direction. And if you look at the valuations, and it's pretty interesting, they've sold reserves equivalent to about 2% of their total reserves for a price which is more than 6% of their market capitalization. So, you know, that's a pretty good deal. And that does indicate there are an awful lot of good assets out there. I mean, frankly, I feel like I know BP pretty well. I didn't even know they owned it. A lot of these things, there's right. it's kind of you know, you, you, you turn up a stone and there's three billion dollars worth of assets in some yeah. odd bit of kind of onshore U.S. gas production or in in the western desert of Egypt. Interesting to see on the other side of the deal, Apache buying these assets in Egypt, Canada and the US. Apache, a specialist in exactly this kind of deal, taking these kind of mature old assets, getting on towards the end of their lives and squeezing every last drop out of them. They've been very, very successful doing that in other places. They bought 40s. And they bought 40s. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that was, I mean, in retrospect, I think some BP executives kicked themselves about that deal. It was, it was about a billion dollars, a bit over a billion, I think. They they paid for the 40s field in the North Sea, which had been BP's great field when they were mm. a two-field company yeah. back in the 1970s. Uh, 40s was one of those fields. And Apache got it. It was producing 40,000 barrels a day when they got hold of it in uh, 2003. They managed to raise production to 70,000 barrels a day. And, of course, in that time, the price of oil went up from $20 up to $100, whatever it was. So that was a fantastic deal for Apache. And, of course, at the same time, what was BP doing was reshifting its focus from those niggly, maintenance-prone platforms in the North Sea to the gleaming new um, rigs in the Gulf of Mexico and going deeper and deeper into there. And so it sounds like it's a very important time to have a real leader at the top of BP. But at the same time, um, Tony Hayward seems relatively fatally wounded. Uh, What's his future look like? Well, I think it's been very clear for some time he's going to have to go. I think there's a question about when he'll have to go, because I think probably they're going to need to sort out the issue of the chairman first. Carl Hendrik Sandberg, the chairman, has also been very, very strongly criticised, but it's one of the chairman's key jobs is to appoint the chief executive, so you probably need to know whether or not the chairman's going to be there to know who's going to be appointing that chief executive. It's everyone's assumption really at the moment now that Tony Hayward will go probably in the autumn and will be replaced probably by Bob Dudley, the managing director for the Americas and Asia. In a lot of ways, of course, it's unfair that Tony Hayward's going to have to go. He's still got a lot of support among British investors. People remember uh, how his performance was up until the accident happened. As, as someone was saying to me, if you were to review his performance from May the 1st, 2007, to when he took over up until April the 19th, 2010, it was fantastic. He was mm-hmm. he, he, he was a chief executive they all really admired, really liked, thought was doing a great job in terms of safety and in terms of, of financial performance. Carolyn, thank you very much indeed for coming in. We will certainly be following the future developments in BP. It's still a very fast-moving story, and there will be more that we'll be looking at during the week to come. And in particular, that date of July the 27th is going to be a very, very interesting one when we get the BP results announcement and some statements from BP then. But for now, that's all from me, Ed Crooks. Energy Weekly was produced by LJ Filatroni, and we hope you'll be back with us again next week. Thanks very much. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. 
Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.